0: Amen. Thank you so much. Please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. Under the title tonight, Paul's Portrait of the Spirit-Filled Life. Paul's Portrait of the Spirit-Filled or Spirit-Controlled Life. Last time when we were studying Ephesians chapter 5, We took one entire message for what it meant or what it means to be Spirit-filled or controlled by the Holy Spirit there in Ephesians 5.18. And tonight as we continue through chapter 5, we need to consider the implications or results or means possibly of what being filled or controlled by the Holy Spirit looks like. And we'll talk about three of them this evening, contained for us there in verses 19, 20, and 21. Of course, as you move on beyond verse 21, you find, beginning from verse 22 and running all the way through chapter 6, verse 9, more implications of what it means to be Spirit-controlled or Spirit-filled, including... Wives and their responsibility and relationship to husbands, husbands and their responsibilities and relationship to wives, uh, children to their parents, parents to their children, masters to their slaves, slaves to their masters. And Paul very evidently believed that zeroing in on those areas of our relationships together were very, very important. And indeed, this particular section from verse 18 all the way through chapter 6, verse 9, is the longest section in any of Paul's letters where he addresses these matters of being spirit controlled in an elongated fashion. It's addressed a little bit more shortly and to the point in Colossians, a couple of other places as well, of course. Uh, Peter gets in on the act as well in 1 Peter chapter 3. But Paul takes here to the Ephesians the longest section of anywhere where he writes as an apostle to the churches. And he addresses this spirit-filled, spirit-controlled life. Beginning, of course, in verse 18 and going all the way through to chapter 6, verse 9. And this is a long and detailed section. And I want to delay the section where it begins regarding wives and husbands, so that we can take that in a section all by itself. So we'll deal with verses 19, 20, and 21 tonight. And they read as follows. You follow along as I read, including, of course, verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled, controlled with the Spirit, addressing one another in Psalms, and hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. You know, when I think about Verse 18, and what we covered last time, do not be drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with spirit, I couldn't help uh, but see a connection with our culture even today as the news is reporting that the prestigious head coach position for the University of Southern California, which is currently manned by Steve Sarkeesian, only been on the job as head coach Of course, was formerly an assistant coach there for a number of years, but now is the head coach and is taking an indefinite leave of absence because of an out-of-control lifestyle with alcohol. And this is just one example of many where you would think having one of the most prestigious head coaching positions in all of college football, probably within the top three or so, In terms of its prestigious nature, a person like that may be said to have it all, at least in terms of the sports world and most especially the college football world. And yet, because of issues and problems at home and elsewhere, he has repeatedly come under fire because of this drinking issue. And if he were only to know the truth of Ephesians 5.18, and the Spirit-controlled life. Now, that life most assuredly could be different. And it's all over our culture, as you know. The Spirit-filled life as over against drunkenness, drunkenness with alcohol, including the effects of that, debauchery, dissipation. And this is surely the teaching of the Word of God that is applicable to all of us, and of course for every person on the planet And Paul goes on in verses 19, 20, and 21 to give us three ways that the Spirit's control can be manifest as he outlines here in verses 19, 20, and 21. And I've called them as follows. Number one, Spirit-filled or Spirit-controlled worship. Spirit-filled worship, verse 19. Secondly, Spirit-controlled or Spirit-filled thanksgiving, verse 20. And then thirdly, and finally for tonight, spirit-filled or spirit-controlled submission, verse 21. And even though there are five participles that relate to the main verb, and the main verb, of course, is be filled with the Spirit, Paul gives five ing words, let's call them, that sort of branch off from that main verbal idea of being filled with the Spirit, and they are, according to verse 19, addressing or speaking to one another. That's the first one. And then secondly, singing. You'll see that listed there. Thirdly, making melody. Fourth, giving thanks. And number five, submitting. You see all those ing words? Addressing, singing, making melody, giving thanks, and submitting to one another. Those... Five participles give uh, the result, if that's the way the verses are to be understood, or maybe even the means whereby someone is spirit-controlled. I think it probably more relates, in the sense of the passage, to the results of being spirit-controlled in the Christian life. These are ways that a person has a resultant attitude and set of actions on what it means to be spirit-controlled in the Christian life. And I think we could take these five participles and group them under these three headings because, of course, the first three of them relate very, very specifically to our worship. And then, of course, the fourth one relates very definitely to our thanksgiving. And the last, submitting, certainly relates to the idea of submission in the Christian life. So let's take the first one, spirit-filled or spirit-controlled Worship. What does Paul say of a person who is Spirit-controlled? If they are indeed filled with the Spirit of God, according to verse 18, the latter part of it, then it will result, Paul says in verse 19, this way, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and then singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart. Now, when I think of what Paul is doing here in verse 19, I can see, and probably so can you, two dimensions, two realities, uh, two directions, two trajectories from which Paul says the spirit spirit-controlled life can be seen in our worship. And the first is what we might call the horizontal dimension. The horizontal dimension. Notice what Paul says again in the first part of verse 19. Addressing one another. That alone there. That gives us the idea that it is horizontal directions that Paul is talking about. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. In other words, the result of what it means to be spirit-controlled first, says Paul, affects how we relate to each other with our music. With our music. And this is why I'm dividing up the first three participles under that one heading, the idea of spirit-controlled worship. Because when he says, addressing one another, in verse 19a, and then singing, making melody to the Lord with all your heart, he's talking about those Two different dimensions. The first being the horizontal dimension. We are addressing or speaking to one another with these psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And then there is a vertical dimension that Paul gives us in verse 19b. And that is singing and making melody to the Lord. That's the vertical dimension. So one another, horizontal and vertical to the Lord. And I want to break those down and talk about those very, very specifically. So let's talk first about this horizontal dimension. And Paul uses that word addressing, or maybe your translation might have speaking. Now, I know it seems a little strange or a little odd that Paul could say that something you're doing with regard to music is something that you're speaking, right, instead of singing. But he surely means addressing because the particular word he uses here is a word that comes from a family of words that means to speak, it means to communicate, it means to talk. And as I thought about that, uh, what does it mean to talk with regard to music? And certainly as we sing, we are singing words and we are thinking about those words and we can think and speak and address each other with regard to those words. For instance, take your bulletin out again And look at the back page of what we sang a moment ago in that great song, Ancient Words. And in those words, you have something that we should address with each other. Not only with regard to what we're singing about when we sing this song, but also the implications of this song. Holy words long preserved for our walk in this world. Notice the collection there of all of us for our walk in this world. They resound with God's own heart. These holy words. Oh, let the ancient words impart. Impart what? Impart truth. And the truth that it imparts while we sing it and then while we talk together about it are the implications of addressing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. This is is a collection of words and these words mean something and when they are sung they have implications for all of us as we sing. It's really no different than creeds and confessions. Even though we don't sing those by and large it's the same idea. Creeds and confessions like songs are ways our our directions, our purposes that God uses to teach us. And we are addressed with each other regarding these truths, both that we sing and that we talk about. In the parallel passage, for instance, look at Colossians chapter 3, and you'll see exactly what I mean. This very same section, which is in so many ways parallel to Ephesians chapter 5, Notice what Paul says here in chapter 5 of Ephesians. He says, addressing one another, speaking to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. But notice how he changes things to the Colossians in Colossians 3.16. Here he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Christ's words. Christ's teaching. And then it says, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, that is, all of the wisdom of Christ's Word, and then singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. If you see the parallels there, same idea, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. In Ephesians 5, it's addressing or speaking to one another out of those psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And in Colossians 3, it's the Word of Christ dwelling in you richly with this teaching and admonishing of one another. You have the same reference to one another. And the wisdom of Christ's Word, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And when these ancient words speak words of life, words of hope, give us strength... Help us cope. In this world, where'er we roam, ancient words will guide us home. And then the chorus, ancient words, ever true, changing me, changing you. We have come with open hearts. Oh, let the ancient words impart. The ancient words of Scripture. This is a song about Scripture. This is a song about how the ancient words of Scripture will change us. These are how the ancient words, the holy words of our faith, verse 3 goes on to say, handed down to this age, come to us through sacrifice, the sacrifice of those who painstakingly copied this word for us. Oh, heed the faithful words of Christ, which even includes those faithful words of those who their sacrifice, the sacrifice of their faith, Even made martyrs' blood of them. Martyrs' blood stains each page. They have died for this faith. Hear them cry through the years. Heed these words and hold them dear. Ancient words ever true. That's a teaching ministry. The Lord teaches us through the songs that we sing. Now, it's so easy for all of us, myself included, to stand as John asks us to stand and begin to sing And there are times when you and I sing and and the words are flowing from our lips and our hearts are a thousand miles away from here, right? And yet, Paul says that one of the ways that you and I are spirit-controlled, spirit-filled, is by speaking or addressing one another in these psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And how do you do that? You address collectively, corporately, as we sing together. And as is our habit, and I know it's so many of yours, you talk about the implications of these songs. You talk about what these songs mean, what they mean to you, how they impact you. I've been in church worship services now for 40 plus years, and there have been certain songs, not only in my heart, But in the hearts of those that I've talked to, as I see them singing, sometimes I'll turn around and I see a robust song being sung by believers and I'll see certain people weeping. Haven't you seen that? Because of the song's impact. And it's not just the melody, it's the words. The impact of the words. Something strikes a chord and then they tell you later, in their fellowship time with you, that word impacted me so much. That song, that line, that verse is so impactful for me. And as they explain their full heart to you, you are edified. You are built up in the faith because the impact of that song caused them to speak to you about the implications of that psalm, that hymn, that spiritual song. This is what Paul is saying here. He says if we're spirit-controlled as true Christians, we want, we should be communicating and speaking to one another by means of or in the sphere. And then he gives three words here. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And so many people have asked me through the years, all right, is there any differentiation between these three words? Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And the answer is, if there are, I don't know about it. I mean, there could be. There, there might be some nuance of difference. But these particular words, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, and we'll define them in a few moments, they are somewhat interchangeable even in the Scripture, both in the Old and New Testaments. And because they are somewhat interchangeable... I don't think there's really a great deal of difference between them. Some have attempted to make a lot of difference between them, uh, but I think they're grasping at straws here because of their interchangeability. I think for all intents and purposes, Paul's not trying to make a differentiation in these words. He's actually, I think, by the interchangeability of them, he's just grouping them all together so that we could understand the full impact of what it means to be Spirit-controlled in regard to your worship. For instance, here's the first word, psalm. That's really what the word is. Psalms in the plural, of course, psalm in the singular, and it's psalmos, originally mean uh, meant the singing of a song with a stringed instrument. That's really what the word psalm is. It's it's taking the stringed instrument and playing that instrument in a song. It's It's very clear that in the first century church, Paul, for instance, matter-of-factly states in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 that the psalms or songs were going to be sung in church. And this is our justification. This is our philosophy of ministry for why we sing as we do in church. Indeed, turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and you'll see the justification for why we believe Scripture calls upon us to worship God in music. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And Paul says it in a very matter-of-fact way. He's talking, for instance, in verse um, 26 of chapter 14 about the orderliness of our worship. And he says, 1 Corinthians 14:26, What then, brothers, when you come together, each one that's come together in a worship context, worship service, when you come together, each one has a what? Hymn. A hymn. And then a lesson, a teaching. And then, of course, because the canon of Scripture had not yet closed, uh, additional revelation was being given. He says a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. And then he says, let all things be done for building up. And he just says, almost as an aside, if if the worship service is going to go this way, there's going to be some things that are customary. And one of those, each one has a hymn. And so he talks very, very definitely about the idea that there are going to be psalms, songs in church. And that's why any worship service worship service worth its salt is going to be a worship service that contains corporate singing. And that's what Paul means. Here's the second word. The second word is humnos or humnos in the singular, and that's the word from which we derive the word hymn. So you've got "psalmas" psalms, and humnos, hymn. And it essentially means singing songs of praise to God. That's all it means. Very generic. A a, a stringed instrument that produces a psalm or a song or could be. And then a hymn singing praise to God. And you know, this was what the Lord Jesus did as well. Turn to Matthew chapter 26 and you'll see this. I don't know if you have noticed this before in your Bible reading. But in chapter 26 of Matthew's Gospel, notice what happens in the institution of the Lord's Supper with the Passover being celebrated by the disciples. Verse 30, Matthew 26, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And what kind of hymn would that have been? Probably one of those Hallel Psalms. Psalms 113 to 118. Songs of Hallel. Hallelujah. And that was customary for the Jews of ancient times, especially at Passover, to sing these Hallel Psalms, to sing a hymn. And Jesus did likewise. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Acts chapter 16 you can certainly write these down and study this on your own. Acts chapter 16, verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. Which implies, of course, that the prisoners were listening to the words of, Of that hymn. They were singing songs of praise to God. And then Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. This is just to substantiate the idea that it is quite biblical. The Bible reveals not only what the early church did, what Jesus himself did, and it is the songs of praise to God. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 12. This is why Jesus is not ashamed, according to verse 11, to call us brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Quoting Psalm 22, 22. There again, it's the justification, the substantiation, that the early church was involved in praising God they were addressing one another. They were speaking to one another in these hymns and these psalms. And then thirdly, that third word that's listed there in Ephesians 5.19 is the word odes. Odes. And it, of course, is from the diminutive word, the nominative word ode, which is what, of course, we derive our English word ode. Ode. So you've got psalms, The idea of a stringed instrument playing music, singing a song with that stringed instrument. You have the idea of a hymn, that is a humnos, a a, a way to sing praise to God. And then you have an ode. And it's not, of course, like the Greek tragedy, you know, some uh, ode that's a a dearth. Uh, It's the idea of an ode to joy. So you're singing praise to God. you're, You're singing an ode to joy. You're singing a psalm of praise to God. And this... Is biblical. This is what we do. This is why we sing. It's why we put so much emphasis in our worship services collectively to the music. That's why we want to have excellent players. That's why we want to have excellent singers. That's why we want to sing to God, because He's worthy of that. Look in your Bibles at Revelation chapter 5. Do you know this is what's going to be happening in heaven? Do you know how much singing there is going to be going on in heaven? It's amazing. Chapter 5, for instance, speaks very much of this. You, of course, are very familiar with this. And they sang a new song. That word song is the idea. They, they sang an ode of joy. And what were they singing? And notice this, by the way. And they sang a new song saying or addressing or speaking to others uh, lyrically. And here it is. Worthy are you Lord Jesus Christ, to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And someone says, but that doesn't rhyme. That doesn't sound like a song I'd like to sing. Boy, I'm telling you, the heavenly language of that song, if you and I could hear it now, would be the best song we've ever heard in our entire lives. And this is an ode to joy. This is the, this is the very ode that is speaking of our Savior. Look at chapter 14 of Revelation. Chapter 14. This is, this is a new song Revelation 14:3 and they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders emblematic of the church no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. And then chapter 15 the very next chapter Verse 3, and they sing the song of Moses, which we saw all the way back in Exodus 15 this morning. The servant of God and the song of the Lamb, saying, great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you for your righteous acts have been revealed. This is is the horizontal dimension. This is how we address one another. How we speak to one another, even musically. And we do so with joy. We do so with a song on our lips, a song of praise to God. You say, well, how can this practically work out? Here's how I think a couple of ways it can practically work out. Number one, we have to leave great songs for our kids. We have to. There's not an option. Which means we have to have musicians who can prepare them, teach them how to play magnificent songs. And not just with regard to the words, but good music. Excellent music. You know you can't sing how great their are to the tune of Yankee Doodle Dandy doesn't work it's it's not a good song it's got great lyrics but if it's attached to a song to melody that is not fitting it is not glorifying to God and if you've got great music as far as music goes and yet the words themselves the very lyrics are unbiblical it doesn't fit You have to have both. And we ought to be teaching our kids. I've talked recently with John Nelson and and just encouraged him about the possibility because of his excellent guitar abilities. If we have young people in our midst, would you be able to teach them? There have been a few who have even reached out to him and said, teach me the guitar. Teach me how to be a good musician. That's the kind of legacy we need to leave. There's a wonderful opportunity for us to leave a godly legacy of well-chosen music and great biblical lyrics because we are mandated under being spirit-controlled on a horizontal level how to teach each other, speak to each other, address one another in these psalms and hymns and spiritual songs because we want the next generation to know how to sing songs of worship and praise to our great God, right? Absolutely teaching believers scripture. And I think, of course, that also means taking modern music and even interweaving the Psalms themselves from the Psalter. I don't know about you, but I have heard and I have a a hymn book uh, in my collection of books at home that actually has uh, the metered Psalms put to music. Now, often. It's a little bit distant from us or maybe our sensibilities at times when we hear something like that and it's, and it's unfamiliar to us. But I would suspect that the more familiar we became with the Psalter of God's songbook, the more the impact of the Word of God would play on our hearts and minds as we worship together. We ought to do that more than we do. That's the horizontal dimension. What about in verse 19, the vertical dimension? The vertical dimension. Here's what he says in verse 19b. Singing and making melody to whom? The to the Lord. To the Lord with all your heart. And these two participles make up that vertical dimension. Singing songs. Adantes. And making melody. This is This is... Solantes. And Adantes is just as it says, singing. And that word in Revelation uh, in those three passages that we mentioned is singing, that's that word, a song. So it actually talks about singing and when it does, it's singing to the Lord, about the Lord. And then that second word there, making melody, is the word from which we derive the word psalms. And you could say Paul is here advocating both singing and psalming. Now that is not a word that we commonly use, but that's really how it could be literally translated. Singing and psalming. Psalming mean, meaning singing. How we can sing to the Lord. And because the word psalm is, is to, to pluck, to pluck an instrument. We're playing music And we're singing to the Lord. Now, I know that there are some people who are very, very uncomfortable with certain plucked instruments. I know people who are very uncomfortable with with certain percussive instruments. I understand that. And each one of us has a preference with regard to how we think certain musical ideas and certain instruments ought to be played, and some of them ought to be played outside the church, and some of them ought to be played inside the church. But I do want to at least show you Psalm 150. If you'll look there, there seems to be in the mind and heart of our God the idea, however it plays in your own mind, A loud crescendo to our God. And even, of course, not just in Psalm 150, but Psalm 148 and Psalm 149, but at least for our time and opportunity, look at Psalm 150. Praise the Lord! Exclamation point. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty heavens. Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Praise Him with trumpet sound. Now there's a loud instrument. Praise Him with lute and harp. You say, well, that's a little softer. Uh, Maybe so, maybe not. Praise Him with tambourine and dance. Praise Him with strings and pipe. Praise Him with sounding cymbals. Now that sounds loud to me. Praise Him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. I don't know. That sounds loud to me. There's a crescendo to it all, because our God deserves this kind of song. He, he deserves this, this glorious, instrumental praise to His name. Romans 14, or excuse me, Romans 15:9. Romans 15:9 talks in Romans 15:9, this way. And in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy, as it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. Sing. we got to sing. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 15. we got to sing. We must sing to the Lord. For Spirit-controlled, we're singers. 1 Corinthians 14, 15. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, Paul says, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. And when you're singing, and when you're praising, you're singing to God. Does it spill out on the horizontal dimension to people around you? Of course it does. Because we're singing together. But even when you're alone... Even when you're in the shower, even when you're in the car, even when you're walking, you're singing, you're singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. You can't help but do that. Singing is the praise of the heart. Singing is the attitude of your thankfulness to God. Singing is the glory that's due His name. And you just burst forth in ebullient praise. Because you want God to be glorified. This is the vertical dimension. And notice what he says. It is with all your heart. It's all your heart. This could be either in your heart or as I think it is, with all your heart. Maybe it's something like this. In the sphere of the instrumentality of the capacity of of thinking and rationality that God has given you. That's the heart. That's the control center. That's the thinking part of you. That's your inner self. Paul says if you're Spirit-controlled, if you're filled with the Holy Spirit... You're going to be addressing one another with these psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and it's going to be a horizontal blessing and you're you're going to encourage each other and you're going to love and serve each other by the songs that you sing and by the songs that encourage each other as you talk about them, as you learn them, as even you are an orchestra of praise to God, as everybody knows their parts, as everybody works in four-part harmony, as everybody pulls together in the body of Christ. You're going to address each other And the horizontal dimension of praise, you can't help but sing to our God, and what you're doing in that moment horizontally is captured by what everybody of us is doing vertically. We're singing praise to God, and we're doing it with all our hearts. That's why there's no such thing or should be for Christians when they're singing. And I know it's a challenge. You've got everything else that you're thinking of, your mind is distracted. Your heart is led away to something else. And you really have to fight for it, don't you? When you're standing there and you're singing on this horizontal level and you hear everybody singing beside you and in front of you and behind you, it can pull you back to the idea of your straying thoughts, to the idea of, no, I'm singing to God. And when that is drawing you back to singing your vertical praises to God, you're reminded, I've got to do this with all my heart. I've got to do this because God is the audience, right? He knows that our hearts are straying. He knows that we can be distracted. But He also knows that if you're spirit-controlled, if the Holy Spirit is filling you and leading you and you're walking in, with, and by the Holy Spirit, you want to vertically praise God because you know it's right and you want to do it with all your heart. And... Who are you directing that praise to? Who are you directing it to? What does Ephesians 5 say? To God the Father. Is that what it says? To God the Father. Ah. But who's the Lord? Ah, very good. Very good, because did you know That in the book of Ephesians, every reference to this term Lord is a reference to Jesus. That's Trinitarian. God the Father is certainly mentioned here, and the Holy Spirit is mentioned in the book of Ephesians. But when the term Lord is mentioned in this book, it is a reference to Jesus Christ. Very good. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart. To the Lord Jesus Christ. And that really causes us to praise God even more because when we're praising the Lord Jesus Christ, we're praising Him for our redemption, we're praising Him for His cross we're praising him for his forgiveness and as you as you resuscitate your heart recalibrate your mind with all these distractions with all of the things that could pull your heart away you're fighting for the idea that i'm singing to and about my savior and when you know that you're experiencing the forgiveness of sin every day of your life you're saying To that Lord, I sing praise to You. And I'm doing it with all my heart. And I have to fight for doing it. I mean, the Lord gives us every new Sunday opportunity, doesn't He? I mean, we have an opportunity every Sunday to fight for the idea of singing in such a way that we are bringing great glory to God because we're singing to the Lord Jesus We're singing and making melody with all our heart. And yes, it takes the challenge of the Christian life and all that's fighting against us our own fleshly indulgences, our own sin and iniquity. And we are fighting against those things. And we're fighting against the world. And we're fighting against Satan and his nefarious deeds and devices. And when we do, we're making that connection with the God of our salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ because in our singing and making melody in our heart to the Lord, it's because we are endeavoring to be filled and controlled by the Holy Spirit. We have to be. It's a command in verse 18. Be being continually filled and controlled by the Holy Spirit with the result that you are addressing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and you are singing and making melody in your heart with all your heart to the Lord, the Lord Jesus. And I'm going to fight for that opportunity. It's a warfare, isn't it? Because everything is nipping at our heels to be everything but praising God under the control of the Holy Spirit. And when I have that uppermost in my mind, and it should be when we sing, I should be saying, Lord, let me fight this. Let me fight the boredom. Let me fight the world. Let me fight the flesh. Let me fight sin. Let me fight Satan so that I am singing to God with a pure heart. That doesn't necessarily mean that everybody's octave range is going to go up. It doesn't necessarily mean that everybody's going to have an automatic smile on their face, but it may mean this, you are smiling through your tears as you're singing with all your heart to the Lord Jesus Christ. And those tears may be tears of sadness because you're battling sin, because you're battling a bad attitude. Or it could be tears of joy because you are confessing sin and you are seeing the glory of the Lord in a new and a fresh and a significant way because you are worshiping God, Spirit-controlled Worship. Number two, and this will be quicker. (laughs) Number two, spirit controlled thanksgiving. Spirit controlled thanksgiving. Look at verse 20 giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanksgiving. What an incredibly important aspect of the Christian life. One of the most important. You know in Romans 1 when it says that there were those, all men in fact in our unregenerate state, who are worshiping the creation instead of the creator. And you know what it goes on to say? And they refused to give what? Thanks. They refused to give the Creator thanks. I read where one commentator said this, you might as well say that being involved in thanksgiving, that is in the Christian way, is actually a synonym for what it means to be a Christian. A Christian is a thanksgiver. And we ought to remind ourselves of that regularly. This is a spirit-controlled attitude and it's a spirit-controlled verbalization that I want to give thanks to God. I want to speak to Him of my thanksgiving. And how do I do it? Four ways. Four ways. I want to show you this. Write down in your notes, how often? How often should I give thanks? That's a legitimate question. Here's Paul's answer. What does he say? Giving thanks, how? Always. Always. Or we might say this, regularly. Maybe that's the best way to capture it. Or possibly even this, constantly. Constantly thank God. If you're Spirit-controlled, if you're under the the filling, the explosive control of the Holy Spirit of God, you're a regenerate person, you're a Christian, you love the Lord Jesus, you're automatically going to want to give thanks to God and you're going to want to do it Always, regularly, constantly, thinking of every single way that you are so thankful to God. How often? Always. How about the next one? For what? For what should we be thankful? For everything. Romans 8.28 And God causes all things to work together for good. He didn't say all things are good, but they are working together for good to those who love God and to those who are the called according to His purpose. We must, as Christians, and the synonym of thanksgivers, give many thanks to God constantly and regularly for everything. And then thirdly, to whom? To God the Father. To God the Father. That's what it says. And then... Through whom? In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see how easy Paul outlines what it means to be a thanksgiving person? I'm to do it regularly and constantly. And I'm to do it comprehensively for everything. And I'm to do it to certain persons. And those persons are the Father and the Son. And I'm doing it to the Father through the redemptive work of the Lord Jesus Christ. I wouldn't even be able to have access to the Father unless I had been given that access through our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see how prepositions are so important in the Christian life? To whom? To God the Father. Through whom? Our Lord Jesus Christ. We are to be a thankful people. I am not nearly, each and every day, as thankful as I ought to be. And especially when challenges arise, especially when trials await, especially when it seems as though God appears distant. And far away. It is at those times, my friend, when you ought to be the most thankful. You know why? Because it pulls that distance between you and God so much more closely together. He's becoming more near to me. Why? Because I'm doing to Him what He deserves. I'm thanking Him, I'm praising Him, I'm singing to Him. I'm singing about Him. I'm praising Him for who He is. And I'm doing it through our Lord Jesus who allowed me the access by the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And when I am full of praise and worship and song and I'm addressing one another on a horizontal level and when I'm addressing God on a vertical level, all of the trials, all of the tests, all of the challenges can and will be managed appropriately through thanksgiving. It will. It can. And it must. It's a synonym of what it means to know the Lord. To be a thankful person. How could I not thank God for all of the good gifts He's given me? How could I not do that? It's it's really, in a sense, unfair. You say, unfair to God? No. It's unfair in a sense to me because I'm not thinking about all the things He's done for me. It's selfish. It's self-centered. It's a lack of forethought about who God is and what He's done through the redemption that's in Christ. And it causes me not only not to glorify Him, but to attempt in my self-centered capacity to glorify myself. Because who else am I turning to? You say, well, I'm turning to friends. I'm turning to this or that or some other dimension of life that's going to get me the relief I'm after. Oh, my friends, how's that working for you? How's it working? If you are not going first and foremost and directly and constantly and regularly to God to give Him thanks that is God the Father, and you do it through the Lord Jesus Christ, this thanksgiving to God will lift your spirit. It will cause not your trials and your tests and your challenges to go away by no means, but it will allow you via 1 Corinthians 10.13 to know that God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tested beyond what you're able, but with that temptation, with that testing, He'll provide a way of escape so that you may be able to to endure it. And then you turn right around again and you're meeting God there once more and you're thanking Him for giving you the capacity to undergo that trial and to endure it. I mean, Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, I asked the Lord three times to take away this thorn in my flesh. And the Lord said each time, what? My grace is sufficient for you For my power is manifest, evident, there in your weakness. And when that grace is there in my moment of weakness, the only possible response is giving thanksgiving back to God. I am thankful for what He's done for me. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Thirdly and finally, Spirit-controlled submission. Spirit-controlled submission. Verse 21. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, I know that this particular verse has been and could be very misunderstood. Because if you look at it without its context you're going to say to yourself, well, it appears as though Paul is saying that Spirit-controlled persons, believers, Christians are or ought to submit to one another. And that means that every person, regardless of whether it's a male or female, regardless of whether it's a husband or a wife, regardless of whether or not it's a child and a parent, regardless of whether or not it's a slave and a master, everybody ought to, in a kind of mutual self-interest, submit to one another. I mean, that appears to be what verse 21 is saying. But if that's the way we understood this, and by the way, the word submit, potasso" is simply a word that says that there is to be a subjugation. There is to be an arranging under, uh, an arranged order of things. And Paul, knowing that, knowing the Greek language far better than you and I will ever understand it, does not allow us to stay there in verse 21 as though it's undefined. He will go on immediately in verse 22 and tell us how submission is to take place. And how does he do it? Verse 22, wives, submit, that very word, to your own husbands as to the Lord. Verse 24, now as the church submits to Christ so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. But it doesn't say here, husbands ought to submit to their wives. And some have said, yes, but in verse 21, because it says what it says, then it assumes that wives are to submit to their husbands. Yes, because that's what he goes on to say. But also, in an implied sense, Husbands also, in some kind of generic way, ought to submit to their wives. No, the command for husbands there, verse 25, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. No, it's not that husbands submit to their wives. That's not the ordered hierarchy of Christianity. The ordered hierarchy of submission, subjugation, is that wives are to submit themselves to their husbands, and husbands must submit themselves to Christ just as the church submits itself to Christ. That's how Paul is explaining things. It's not as though verse 21 is kind of uh, uh, out there on a limb as a verse standing on its own, standing by itself, Paul is going to go on to explain exactly how the Spirit-controlled life is to be lived. He's already dealt with the idea of mutual love and mutual unity. He says in verse 4, with all humil- in chapter 4, excuse me, verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Yes, we're to bear with one another. Husbands are to bear with their wives. Wives ought to bear with their husbands believers ought to interchangeably bear with one another in love. Why? Because they are eager, verse 3, to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And there is that unity of one body and one Spirit and one hope and one call and one Lord and one faith and one God and Father of us all. Yes, that's true. And as he talks about mutual submission, he's going to get down to verse 21 and he's saying, yes, to be sure that Spirit-controlled living includes submitting to one Another. But how does that work? It works like this Wives submit to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives. If you want to call that a kind of submission, I guess you could do that, but that's not the language that Paul uses. How do you submit? How is there mutual submission? Here it is Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Children, Obey your parents in the Lord, chapter 6, verse 1. Honor your father and mother. Submit to them. And fathers, how do you bear with your children? How do you work toward unity? How do you produce a spirit-controlled family? By not provoking your children, verse 4, to anger, but bringing them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey. It's a form of submission. Your earthly masters Chapter 6, verse 5, with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Masters, verse 9, chapter 6, do the same to them in the sense of knowing your role, knowing what you're called to do, and stop your threatening, knowing that He who is both their Master and yours, that's Christ who is in heaven, and that there be no partiality with Him. That's Spirit-controlled living. And so he begins to define what submitting is. There have, to be sure, been a lot of gymnastics done with chapter, uh, with chapter 5, verse 21. But if you understand it, and if you look at it in its grammar and its context, you're seeing very, very clearly that it means submitting to one another, yes, in the sense that we are unified, that we love one another, that we forgive one another. He's, he's already said in chapter 4, beginning in verse 22, and running through even our own text, what some of this looks like, including verse 31 of chapter 4, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Uh, that's every one of us in the body of Christ, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. But when it comes to house rules... When it comes to the idea of submission, it's a wife to a husband. And when it comes to love, it's a husband toward his wife. And when she submits, she's loving him. And when he is loving her, that love is pervasive because he wants to be unified with her. That's what Paul is driving toward. And it all, Paul says, is to be done out of reverence for Christ. Fearing Christ, that's, that's the word fear, Phobos. It's, it's the concept that you have a healthy respect for Jesus Christ. You honor Him. You fear Him. You respect Him. You laud Him. You honor Him. And because you do, there is this wonderful, beautiful balance in the submission-headship relationship. You want to ask me what submitting to one another Out of reverence for Christ really means it's working out the beautiful balance of those who are supposed to submit to submit out of fear and respect for Jesus Christ. And for those who are in headship over those who are to submit, they're accomplishing their headship out of reverence for Christ. That's what he's talking about. Everybody's right role is being lived out in the right way because everybody is doing so out of reverence for Christ. And when we're doing that, we're showing a watching world whose wives are often not willing to submit and whose husbands are not willing to love. Whose children are not wanting to respect their parents and whose parents are threatening those children. Whose employees are not often desiring to obey their earthly master and whose earthly master wants to do nothing but put their thumb on their workers to threaten them to do what they want. And yet the church is designed to show what submission and headship looks like. And what it looks like is a kind of submission and a kind of headship that is done out of reverence for Christ. Oh, my dear friends, worship, the kind of worship, both horizontally and vertically, that honors God is a sweet savor and aroma into the nostrils of God through Christ. And thanksgiving, it is the kind of thanksgiving that honors God because He's given us so much and He's done so much for us. And it's the kind of submission that honors out of reverence for Christ everybody who's supposed to submit and who does so for that honor of Christ and everybody who's a head of, over those who are submitting and they do so out of reverence and honor for Christ. This is what it means to be Spirit-controlled. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, these are just representative ways really that Paul gives us in this portrait of the Spirit-filled life. But we sure do thank You for this portrait and what a portrait it is. Thank You so much. It seems as though our expression of thanksgiving is so meager or so it is perceived to be by us. But thank You that You receive it. Thank You that You are patient with us, ever so patient. Father, when we are at times not pursuing a Spirit-controlled life, but a, a fleshly controlled one, Allow us to confess and seek forgiveness and pursue the right things in our worship, in our thanksgiving, and in our submission. May we be continually kept, filled, and controlled by the Spirit. Let us walk in the Spirit and be led by the Spirit to honor the Father through the Son and the power of the Holy Spirit. Pray these things for You, through You, and to You. Amen.